It's Friday. Lots to look forward to. And at the end of this episode, we're hoping to have about a minute excerpt from our Dine Drink CLE podcast, where they're talking about how this is the foodie time in Northeast Ohio. But it's today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Laura Johnston, Layla Tassi, and Lisa Garvin to wrap up the week of news. Layla, will the people behind a flawed push to put new voting rules in the Ohio Constitution finally get the message? What did the Ohio Supreme Court do to their latest effort to force the initiative onto the ballot? The Supreme Court declined to fast track their lawsuit, which means that they either have to drop the case or they're going to risk losing their window to collect enough signatures to get this measure on the November ballot. The groups that are behind this filed their case after Attorney General Dave Yost rejected their proposed petition language because of its proposed title, the Voter Bill of Rights. He he previously had rejected another proposed title and described this new one as, as being misleading. The amendment campaign asked the Ohio Supreme Court to overrule, overrule Yost, accusing him of a, a double standard because back in 2021, he had approved the title of another proposed amendment that was called the Nursing Facility Patients Bill of Rights. The group also said that Yost doesn't have authority to block an amendment just because of its proposed title, and the campaign asked for the case to get put on the fast track, similar to how standard elections cases are handled. The campaign is is up against this July 3rd deadline to gather the thousands of signatures that they need to get this on the ballot for November. So like I said, they can either drop the case and choose a different title or proceed on the court schedule and, and likely have to pursue the ballot for 2025 instead. Yeah, it sounds like they won't make it. And it's probably a good thing that they won't make it because I think this would have confused people. And as we've discussed, it's got stuff in it that mm-hmm. Ohioans are not going to like, like removing the photo ID. I don't know why this group has been so stubborn. They just keep trying to come back with flawed language and problems. And instead of fixing it, Dave Yost pointed out legitimate issues with this. To go to the Supreme Court to look for a fast track seemed like a way, they're wasting more time. Maybe they'll come back, get, get it before Yost again one more time before they start crunching that deadline. But they're, it seems like they don't have the funding. There are problems with this. I think they're going to get have some resistance for people signing it. We're going to advocate probably don't sign this. We, mm. This shouldn't be on the ballot in its form. So it's kind of a loser. They're just, I'm surprised at the the lack of kind of voting wisdom here. You know, I, I was wondering, what do you make of the fact that, that other justices on the court were not a part of this decision? It appears to be all Sharon Kennedy in denying the group's request. At least one justice called us to say, hey, I didn't have anything to do with this. Do you think that there's uh, anything inappropriate about that? Well, I, usually the courts have a rule that if X number of justices provide cert, that they will hear it. I mean, in, in the Ohio, U.S. Supreme Court, I think you need four to 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 take a case on. If four judges say, yes, we should hear it, they hear it. I don't know exactly what the Ohio Supreme Court rules are, but if they had enough justices to say we should hear it, I, I imagine Kennedy would have heard it. But they apparently didn't have enough justices. She is the chief justice, and I think she gets to make the call. Hmm. Um, so I don't know. I, I mean, it, look, it's a problem. They're, they're trying to force a problematic thing in. There is a question of how far Dave Yost can go with regard to a title. In his letter, he laid out his legal reasoning for why he does believe he can address the title, not just the language. And I imagine there'll be a lot of precedent searching and discussion. So 
fast tracking that probably isn't in the best interest of anybody. You want a reasoned decision. We'll see what their next step is. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We've been waiting for an answer to this question for a long time. Laura, who in Washington is blocking the railroad safety rules that J.D. Vance and Sherrod Brown have gotten behind to reduce the chances of another East Palestine? And it's a common, common name in the nonsense of American politics. Well, there's a whole long list of people who are getting money for this, but you're probably talking about Texas Senator Ted Cruz. He got more than $14,000 in campaign contributions from the rail industry in the current election cycle and gave multiple reasons for opposing this bill at a committee hearing. He is the top Republican on the Commerce Committee. And he said, well, Norfolk Southern agreed to establish this fund to compensate East Palestine homeowners for property value declines. And he felt the bill was quote, overly and needlessly prescriptive in certain places. I am sure he did. But that he is not the only person getting money from the railroad industry. And you look at the last two years, 2023 and 2022, the railroad industry gave $24 million to politicians in the Senate and the U.S. Congress. And so while J.D. Vance and Sherrod Brown actually agree on something and wanting to pass this bipartisan safety bill that would create safety requirements, procedures for trains carrying hazardous materials, like the vinyl chloride that was released in East Palestine. They talk about putting at least two people on a train, which when you look, think about how long those trains are, it seems insane to me that you would only have one rail conductor on there, uh, providing advanced notification and information to state emergency response officials about what they're transporting, rules for the train size and weight. All of these seem like reasonable things to talk about. And there was real urgency. I mean, East Palestine was huge news. Politicians couldn't go there enough times. I mean, Trump went there, you know, Sherrod Brown went there like eight times. But Nothing's actually been done a year later, even though they talked about urgency. And when the Commerce Committee voted on the bill, that's how far it got. It was supported by just two of the committee Republicans, J.D. Vance and Missouri's Eric Schmidt. They took a page from the NRA. Every time there's a mass shooting, there's lots of calls for changing the law and bringing some sense to our our gun situation in America, and the NRA just sits quietly, plies Congress with lots of cash, and nothing ever happens. That's what the railroads are doing. This was a huge news story. It continues to be, and the railroads just lay low and buy off Congress. That's what this story shows. They're all bought and paid for, and Ted Cruz, the smarmy, he was one of the worst politicians in America. Remember when Texas lost power because of its its uh, grid problem and he slunk off to the tropics while everybody in Texas was sweltering in unbelievable heat, was caught in the airport trying to hide and scurry away. That's Ted Cruz, bought and paid for by the railroads, pretending this is about government regulation when this is 100% about safety. It's common sense, but he's standing in the way of it because the railroads own him. Yeah, and a whole other bunch of people, sorry, okay, um, also got money. So the top recipient of railroad money in this U.S. Senate is a Republican named Roger Wicker of Mississippi. He got $36,000, according to Open Secrets data. This is just in the recent cycle. The highest Democrat was Montana's Joe, John Tester. He's also on the Commerce Committee. <laughs> you sense a theme here? He got $28,000, ranked third overall in rail money. 
Republicans got $1.4 million in campaign contributions from this industry in just the current election cycle. When you think of the cost of that, it is so small compared to what they're spending to clean up East Palestine and and all the testing they've had to do. And they've, they've put people up in hotel rooms for the last year. So like, I mean, they just put that, put that on their balance sheet, like another million dollars to a congressman so that they don't ever get regulated. Yeah, they, these congresspeople don't care about what the public cost is for the cleanup. They don't care about the danger these crashes, which are all over the place, pose to the public. They care about their pockets. And this, it's a great story. Read it. You'll, you can put a face to the resistance. I mean, J.D. Vance and Sherrod Brown don't agree on much. But they got together behind this. It's an absolute good to say, let's make the railroads safer. Let's protect Americans. And Ted Cruz and his little coterie of people enriching themselves and their campaign funds from the railroads stand in the way of common sense safety. Great job by Sabrina. You're listening to Today in Ohio. If you can't bring the railroads to heal with federal law, maybe you can do it with the financial markets. Lisa, who's the Mayfield Heights activist investor who has the Norfolk Southern CEO in his crosshairs, not for safety, but for mismanagement. Yeah, this is an investing firm called Ancora. They are based in Mayfield Heights, as you said, and they have offices in Westlake as well. They have about 100 employees. They were established in 2003. Their current mission is trying to oust Norfolk Southern CEO Alan Shaw. They already have a $1 billion stake in Norfolk Southern, and they're nominating new board members. They're known as activist investors, and they kind of really got going at in 2014 when they hired known activist investor James Chadwick. So what these guys do is they use a publicity blitz to build influence and then push for change in the companies they're looking at via nominating board members who push their agenda. And they also try to get shareholders and other investors on board with their mission. This is not the first time they've dove into activist waters. Just last uh, in December, they sent a letter to Disney shareholders. They're trying to get Nelson Peltz on the Disney board. In 2022, they pushed for a CEO change at Kohl's department stores. And also in 2022, they... you know, submitted a plan for changes at Hasbro, the toy maker. And in 2020, they won board seats at Big Lots. So they've been very, very active. Um, the Wall Street Journal reports that Ancora is going to try a similar strategy with Norfolk Southern. And it's, a, and it's a local guy, a guy sitting in Mayfield Heights. Again, this isn't about safety. Frankly, it's probably against safety. If the railroad started to spend too much money on safety, the investors would lose and they probably wouldn't like that. But it is... An interesting look at how an investor, a lone investor, without taking much of a stake in a company, can completely change the course of that company. Isn't this what we used to call corporate raiders back in the 80s? It seems like a similar uh, similar uh, tactic. I yeah. don't know. Yeah. yeah. It's just interesting that there's a guy in our midst who's so key in it. You are listening to Today in Ohio. It's hard to believe, but a full decade has passed since United Airlines closed its Cleveland hub. Layla, what has been the result for Northeast Ohio Flyers? Susan Clouser says 10 years later, we're we're doing all right without the United hub, but it's kind of a mixed bag of results. We've got lower fares than than there used to be and more travelers than a decade ago, but... 
business travelers hate that there are fewer nonstop flights and connections that and connections are really time consuming and annoying. It's important to note that United is still the largest airline at Cleveland. They serve 2.4 million passengers in 2023. That's about 25% of the total. They used to serve 67% of the total though. And their reduced footprint at Hopkins has really dramatically changed the landscape there. In 2013, which was the year before the hub closed, United operated nonstop flights to 68 cities from Cleveland. Today, that number is 14. Susan points out that some of the routes that that United cut in 2014 are back on their roster, but there are many others that are still important and missing. But losing the hub made room for other carriers at Hopkins, many of which offer services, service to destinations that United used to cover. So you've got Spirit, you've got JetBlue and Alaska, and Frontier Airlines has expanded their presence at Hopkins dramatically since the hub closure. In 2023, Frontier served 1.7 million passengers at, at Hopkins. That's the third largest carrier in Cleveland behind United and American, and they fly to the most destinations of all the character the carriers. They, they announced that they're establishing this crew base with more than 400 jobs here in Cleveland. Having those budget airlines has really driven down the airfare, which was really once among the highest in the nation. I think it was, I think Susan said it was fourth highest in the nation. All of that's really only scratching the surface of the story that she wrote. It's really great. Check it out on cleveland.com. But the upshot here is that it's not all bad news a decade after this hub closure at Hopkins. We should point out that while the fares are lower, all of these low-rent airlines charge a huge number of fees for different things, like sitting together as a family and each bag you check. So when you add it all up, yeah, it's probably still cheaper, but it's not as cheap as it seems because they ding you every way they can. That's true. But I assume that that's the case at every you know, everywhere where they operate. So we can still have an apples to apples comparison among, you know, when we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. It was interesting when it first, the hub first left, everybody predicted doom because it'd been here for a long time. First is continental, even something else like before that. Uh, And within a few years, you saw the signs that, well, wait a minute, it's getting very inexpensive to fly to vacation destinations like Florida and elsewhere. So for business travelers, this has been a disaster because they have to spend way more time getting to places. They have to take connections. They lose a day to travel, whereas they used to be able to do it in a few hours. But for the rest of the people in this town, they get to go on vacation at a much more reasonable price. Mm Mm-hmm. It was interesting to see how much the the loss of this hub has changed who uses the airport. Most of the people who use the airport are, you know, from this region, it seems. And also they've they've captured a lot of the traveling public that used to use uh, the Akron Canton Airport more frequently. And so that has created a bigger demand for parking and and also has influenced decisions around what to do with the new terminal plans. So it's this kind of, you know, decade-long uh, effect on, on the overall airport operations that's been really fascinating. I also thought it was interesting, the discussion about Concourse D in this story, because back then that was really top of mind, what was going to happen to this brand, well, not brand new, but new, new concourse that was built with this particular airline in mind and the kind of regional jet service that they planned on offering and all of that is obsolete now, and they haven't done anything. That's been mothballed for a decade. It's it was really interesting to see that they're oh they're just going to rip that down. Back then there was so much discussion about what what could they do with it, 
my husband at the time was like, they should turn it into a spirit Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good story by Susan. Check it out. It's on cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Ohio lawmakers in 2021 passed a law requiring schools to teach students financial literacy. We're talking about basic things like using credit and money management. But with shades of Jerry Serino's efforts to politicize college curricula, Laura, what do lawmakers now want to add to the financial training? Capitalism. The, the wonderful principles of capitalism. So this still has to get signed by Governor Mike DeWine, but it's talking about the free market and it passed 64 to 26, largely along party lines and in the Senate. So this just adds to that 2021 requirement that, that you have to have to graduate from high school, which just really started last year for ninth graders. So you're going to have to teach kids uh, how the concept of raw materials, labor and capital, how they're privately owned, how societies that embrace the free market often embrace political and personal freedom as well how people control their own ability to work, earn wages, and obtain skills to earn and increase wages. I mean, it does feel like a little a little slanted here, obviously, in favor of why capitalism in America is the best. Yeah, when I was in school, you learned about the difference between capitalism and, and other systems in different kinds of courses, history courses, economics courses, and things like that. But if you're putting this into a financial literacy course, it's clearly intended to be kind of the brainwashing. Uh, teaching kids financial literacy is a great idea, right? Mm -hmm. Because everybody needs to be responsible. We have a financial columnist who addresses this every week. And, and it's a fundamental principle people need to understand. And so when they pass that law, I thought, you know, that's actually a pretty good idea. Now they're corrupting it with the brainwashing. And, you know, what's next? You're going to say, well, as part of financial literacy, you have to learn about the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag and you know, <laughs> read the Constitution. And it, it's just it's that whole Jerry Serino mindset where we don't trust people to be smart enough to educate themselves so we're going to try and brainwash them to make sure that they're in my way of thinking. It's just a silly, silly the, thing. The good news is that if you're taking AP micro or macroeconomics, to uh, this will fulfill that. So it's not like, oh, you're going to have to take this ridiculous financial literacy class. Any, well, not that all of it's ridiculous, but part of it. If you're taking the AP classes, you don't have to take the basic as well. So that's good. Uh, but Rep Representative Joe Miller, he's a Lorraine Democrat who taught social studies. He said that a lot of this capitalism is already covered in history classes. Right. And he called this a one part partisan messaging, one part ideological warfare and one part fix to a financial literacy bill. So he was against it. Like we said, this mostly passed along party lines. Look, if you teach about the different systems and the history of those systems, I think most people are going to get it. And this this takes that away. This takes away any chance of independent thinking and review because the legislature thinks kids are too stupid to figure it out. You're listening to Today in Ohio. One thing that elected leaders in Ohio all appear to agree on is the need to keep the Great Lakes healthy. Lisa, how did they come together this week to make that happen? 
Yeah, they have a, a bill or an act that would extend the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative through 2031 and increase yearly investments in the program by $25 million for a total of $500 million a year. This was introduced by both senators in Ohio, J.D. Vance and Sherrod Brown, and several Ohio congressmen were also on board from both sides of the aisle. Dave Joyce, the Republican from South Russell, who is co-chair of the House Great Lakes Task Force, says this confronts threats like algal blooms, erosion, invasive species, and water pollution. And he pointed out that the Great Lakes region has 1.5 million jobs, $62 billion a year in wages, and it's 90% of the USA's fresh surface water. So the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative was established in 2010. Since then, they've provided $3.3 billion for over 6,800 projects throughout the region, and every dollar spent generates $3.35 in economic activity. Now, I did have a question, though, because, you know, there's this Great Lakes-St. Lawrence River Basin Compact from 2008 that bans diversions of Great Lakes water to cities outside the basin. But in 2016, 8.2 million gallons were diverted to Waukesha, Wisconsin. So there's already a crack in in the armor here. And that's one of the reasons I think you need to try and maintain the strength of the what Congress is trying to do. If we don't keep a focus on protecting the lakes, things like those cracks will continue to happen. Uh, and we do have a lot of economic power in the Great Lakes. The states that surround it are, are people dense and, and need to band together. It's nice to see this is something that they all agree on. You don't really see any outliers here. Mm -hmm. They're all saying, look, we have to do this. We have to make them healthy. We have to keep them safe. We shouldn't be allowing anybody to divert the water away. So it's a good sign that they continue to work together on something. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Later, the First Amendment lawsuit against the city of Cleveland is no more. How did it get settled? This this feels a little anticlimactic as a resolution to this case in some ways because he, he settled for $500 and no additional changes to council's public comment policy. But so the backstory here for those who need a refresher is that this this case was filed by a guy named Chris Martin who had taken the mic during one of Cleveland's city council public comment periods. And during his comments, he began listing the names of council members who had received money from the council leadership fund, which council president Blaine Griffin controls. As he was at the mic talking, Griffin told him he wasn't allowed to name council members or impugn their character and blah, blah, blah. And Martin kept going. So Griffin cut his mic. Martin filed suit with the support of Case Western's First Amendment Clinic, and they argued that council's public comment rules and Griffin's application of them were unconstitutional. They had initially attempted to negotiate changes to the rules, and they wanted more time allotted for public comment. While this case was pending, council did make some changes to the rules that included language that said council could could cut someone off at the mic for making comments believed to be frivolous or repetitive, obscene, or or likely to produce imminent unlawful action. They eliminated a prohibition on public commenters advocating for a political candidate or ballot issue, and that was a change that Martin's lawsuit was seeking. But then there were revisions like the one, you know, request that, that, uh, you know, speakers have to address the council president (laughs) instead of, you know, addressing necessarily the the council member who they might be, uh, they might be taking issue with. 
So I'm not quite sure what else played out behind the scenes in this case and why it settled somewhat abruptly, I guess, for $500. But but that's the end of it. What do you think about it? Well, they got what they wanted. They they did get the council to back off of some of the most ridiculous things they're doing. I think what they're probably going to do now is wait and see. You know, if, if Blaine Griffin follows through on the threat he made to close the meeting to the public because of the, the, the misbehavior by some, I, I think we'd be back in court in a heartbeat because that's probably a violation of the charter, even though they claim that they have the right to do it. So it's kind of detente, right? You know, they, they sued, counsel backed down, things seem to be working right now. So they end the lawsuit and move forward. But I don't think that gives the council a free hand here. If they do anything stupid, there'll be another lawsuit, I suspect. Yeah, I think that how they apply these laws is is where the rubber meets the road here, or this policy. I think, you know, there's a lot of wiggle room in how council might um, interpret something like, you know, frivolous or repetitive speech at the mic. So if, if they start to over overreach, I do think they're going to they're going to end up back in uh, in court. Right. Yeah. And that's there. And the council knows it. So I suspect we'll be at detente for a while. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Cleveland for years lent modest sums of money to prospective homeowners to help them complete their financing. The city was trying to attract more residents at the time, and the loans acted as a second mortgage on the houses. Lisa, why is the city now proposing to forgive those loans without repayment? I'm not really sure why, but uh, this is called the Afford a Home program. It ran from 2005 to 2011, and Cleveland used uh, HUD and block grant money to provide up to $10,000 in debt forgiveness through this program. 351 people were recipients. They got anywhere from $5,000 to $20,000 in forgiveness, but most of them, 304, got no more than $10,000. These loans actually were kind of a de facto second mortgage. Uh, Some of these will in 2041. The city estimates they've paid out about $910,000 in forgiven loans, and this depends on, uh, or they estimate they will give out that much in forgiveness. But you have to be eligible. Your property taxes must be paid up. You can't be in foreclosure. You have to have proof of ownership and that the borrower or the descendant actually occupies the home in question. And this will require city council approval. It's really not on their agenda yet. But um, if it is approved, the eligible loan recipients will be receiving, receiving a letter of notification. Yeah. And I guess it's kind of a reward for people that stuck it out. They bought the house. They're still there. Their family is still there, uh, which was the whole intention here was to get Mm -hmm. these homes occupied to to bring in full time residents. So they could call this a success at a fairly low cost. We're not talking about a gigantic amount of money and it will alleviate the city of having to follow up on all these tiny loans. Right. And 351 people were helped. That's pretty good for kind of a small amount of money. Yeah. No, I, I salute them for, for taking this tack. This this worked. This was a successful program. They tried a lot of things back then. This was one that stuck. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Our colleagues on our Dine Drink CLE podcast have a good time this week talking about how we're heading into one of the best times of the year for Northeast Ohio foodies. The podcast features our team talking about restaurant and bar trends every week. That's what it features. But Laura, what do they say mid-February is about for the wondrous time for foodies? 
Well, it's the Super Bowl of food in Northeast Ohio, and not just because it's the Super Bowl. Although, obviously, that is a food holiday to a lot of people who really enjoy their potato skins and wings and parties and, you know, their pub grub. But it is coming up this coming week is Fat Tuesday, a.k.a. Mardi Gras or Carnival. That's the big party before Lent starts. And when you're a foodie, it's not just Lent. It's fish fry season. Also, Wednesday, which is Ash Wednesday, is Valentine's Day. Huge restaurant date night with all sorts of activities. I guess even breweries are getting into it with like a beer and cheese tasting party. So you don't just have to have a romantic wine and chocolate. So they had all sorts of guests talking about it. And this is, you know, Josh Duke and Alex Darris, who are the experts, and they bring in the rest of our our food team um, from cleveland.com. Paris Wolf is going to go to the big uh, Poonchki celebration at Rudy Strudel and Bakery in Parma. Apparently, people start lining up at 3 a.m. Mm-hmm. on Tuesday morning, which I mean, you can go buy them now, people. But if you want to go take part in the the big festival with the the music and the food trucks out there, go then. I am not a huge fan of Poonchki, but some people absolutely adore them. To me, it tastes like a jelly donut. They say it's not a jelly donut because it's really five times the butter and the eggs that you would put in a jelly donut. But you can also get some really intriguing flavors like lavender and some savory meat pierogi if you're into that. So All that's right. the first one up. So let's let's give a listen to a brief part of the conversation where Alex Darris, Josh Duke, and Mark Bona talk about Mally's chocolate-covered strawberries. I know one thing that is a big Cleveland Valentine's Day tradition is the Mally's chocolate strawberries. Um, is that something you've ever, have you ever had them, Josh? Tell me about it. You've never, they only release them on Valentine's Day, I think, and maybe Sweetest Day too. Mm. But they, I feel like they always, people line up out the door the second they open and they're like the best chocolate covered strawberries. And I don't know why. So more lines in the winter. Yes, yes. <laughs> but it's worth it. Yeah. <laughs> it's a big deal. I sat down with Mike Malley a couple of weeks ago to talk about this. And I said, so is Valentine's Day your Super Bowl? And he said, well, maybe not the Super Bowl, but it's definitely the playoffs. I think it's it's neat having the show today because we're talking about so many Cleveland traditions. And we've talked about Poonchku. We've talked about Christmas ale launch. We've talked about fish fries uh and now now strawberries and, and chocolate yeah. alleys yeah no you know what sounds really good though what injecting those strawberries with some good old vodka <laughs> oh my god <laughs> i mean does it not okay well you can try it you'll get a box and try to make it yourself at home and then you got to yeah. go talk to mike malley and tell him your million dollar yeah, idea or- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So there you go. If you like what you heard there, give Dine Drink CLE a listen. They're having a good time talking about our foodie trends. That's it for the Friday episode of Today in Ohio. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you for listening. We'll be back Monday.